Welcome to The Coaching Podcast with your hosts, Emma Doyle and Simon Blair, coach for success in sport and business. G'day everybody and welcome to The Coaching Podcast. My name's Emma Doyle and I'm here with the fabulous Adam who has inspired The Coaching Podcast to start up again. Of course, it started in 2017, 2018. We had a bit of momentum. Then, you know, things happen, life happens, had a bit of a break. Adam said, I really liked that coaching podcast. And I was like, I'm going to bring it back. Thanks to you. When I was on your podcast, Adam, the coaching podcast is back. So I just want to say, first of all, a lot of gratitude. So good morning. Good evening. How are you? Good, uh, good, good morning and uh, good afternoon from uh, from Denmark. Thank you so much for for having me. And if I at all could could push you in the direction of of doing more podcasts, I'm I'm super happy to hear so. Yes, we we love your podcast too. So we'll uh, we'll give that a shout out at the end as well. Um, we'll get straight into it, uh, Adam. The Vegemite question: You either love it or you hate it or you haven't tried it. Have you even been to Australia? I mean, so there's two questions in there for you already. Yeah, so answering backwards, I haven't been to Australia, but I had a tennis friend growing up that was half Australian. So therefore, they therefore, allowed on you... The, to... On the first question, one of the first things, or I think it was actually the first thing I tried when I visited him, and I didn't like it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> That's okay. It's all right. We We been brought up on it so it's a, a unique experience i'm just glad you've tried it uh in which case of course our follow-up question is your worst coaching moment and what were some of the lessons for our listeners i think uh my worst coaching moment was i i think the background of understanding the the worst coaching moment before getting into it is saying that i'm from a relatively small tennis nation denmark and I think that's a, that's a blessing and a curse. It's a blessing in the way that I have had so many great opportunities and I will for always be grateful to the Danish Federation for everything that, that they helped me do. So I, I, I was very privileged to, to get a feel of what it was like being a coach and also working with, with some, some rather enthusiastic players, parents with great ability having the experience of for a couple of years, almost without saying anything, they just picked it up and they did everything that I wanted them to. I felt like the best coach ever. Then I, I traveled out to, to Spain and worked at a British driven academy in, in Spain called Soto Tennis Academy. And in there, I, I, all of a sudden I was with kids that were not the best of the pack. And I tried some of the same stuff. I tried some of the same coaching cues. All of them I tried, tried, and I was like, what, what is going on here? They are, they're almost not, they're not even hitting the court. And I'm really, I'm, I'm trying to do everything I can in my power. I'm trying with different cues. I'm trying everything that used to work. And all of a sudden, nothing is working. So I built myself up in my mind to, to be a really good tennis coach. And then all of a sudden, I stood out there in Spain and I thought I was the worst coach ever. I love that story. Yeah. Some great lessons there, isn't it? What works for one person doesn't always work for the other. Thank you for sharing Absolutely. that. You got through it, of course. Of course. And I think <laughs> it's, I think uh, tennis coaching 2.0 for me has, has been a lot into semantics. I'm, I'm super fascinated by it. I've been in, in general sports psych for, for the past five years, and I'm really interested in the mental aspect of sports in general, but, but I've grown up in tennis. And, and I've also come to believe that a lot of the sports psych work in tennis, well, we can eliminate that and not be turning out fires with sports psychologists if we are better tennis teachers. And I believe the way that we go about our communication in the semantics from on the tennis court and also what the kids are brought up with at home in the car to a tournament and especially that car ride back home from a tournament, I, I think it's, it's a foundation psychologically. And I think, I don't know if it was entirely the, the situation in Spain that brought my attention to, okay, there's really an area here where I'm not skilled enough and I need to pay more attention to that. But it was definitely one of the cornerstones for my curiosity. 
Fantastic. And I love that word curiosity thrown in there. One of my favorites at the moment. I'm on a curiosity train, uh, but we'll get to that later. Uh, the second question is the sliding doors question. So getting out to Spain, uh, coming from Denmark, um, moving to Spain, the south of Spain, it was fantastic. I love the hot weather. I love waking up um, only wearing a t-shirt and shorts. Um, I felt like I was out in paradise, even though I was challenged as a coach. It, it was, to me, it, it was a dream. And I had the responsibility of five players that I got to, to train and go travel with. And that, that was, to me, that was really what I wanted. My girlfriend's mom then, then got an aneurysm and that led us to relocate to, to Denmark at that point. That also led me for the first time in my professional career to think twice about what I, I would do. I, I grew up with tennis. I never questioned to that day that I should be in tennis. Um, I still don't see a life where I could have, tennis will always be in my life in some sh shape, way or form. But for the first time, I considered, okay, if I'm not mindlessly going to travel a lot of weeks a year because I want to be present in, in my girlfriend's life and the family's life back at home, what am I going to do? By education, I knew I could do general sports psych. I thought maybe at a later point in my life, I would go into general sports psych. It came out of the blue that I, I wouldn't say I felt forced into it, but it, it was something that, that came out of that situation. I've now used five years in general sports psych, um, still being attributed to tennis, but also a lot of other sports. I'm super, super happy for that experience. But it's also brought me back towards tennis in the, the way that there is a special passion for tennis. And I, I believe I can do more within tennis because I understand the sport. I understand the culture. I hope I've done an okay job in general sports psych, but it's different understanding the coaching role in tennis and everything that goes into the culture. And with the sports psych from the past five years in different sports, that, that's really what I'm trying to do now to go back towards tennis and, and really focus on the, the teaching role and how we can do better, better as teachers and how we can build a solid foundation for the psychological development of players and their, their character, no matter where they end up playing the role. Mm. And resiliency, I saw on your, uh, your website as well. It's great character skill, isn't it? Essential in tennis resiliency. So uh, I love that. Thank you for sharing. The next question is in one to a maximum of three words, what do you think makes a great coach? Let me answer. I know I, I, I have already answered you on this question, but let, let, let me answer with some slightly different words that might seem a little bit weird, but, but let me put some more words on them. But, but you are challenging me on the words. I will say expectation first. I will say adapting or adapt second. And I will say environment third. What I mean by those words, first of all, expectation. Something, and I think these words are reflected a lot in what I've experienced myself, where I'm probably still need to develop, but also something that... I wish somebody told me when I started out as a coach. So expectation in the way I often find new player approaching, whether you are in a club, a country club, working privately, they want to work with you. And you, yeah, you're like, of, of course, let, let's jump straight in onto, onto the court and, and let's get going. To me, we're missing a very essential part. That's, that's very, very, like, it, it can be nice and we go ahead. But if the standards and if the expectations are type of spoken about, but not really talked about before we step onto the court, then I think we're going to be in trouble down the road. So taking the time to have that not necessarily tough talk, but be straight up about, who you are as a coach, what you expect, also listening in obviously on the player or their parents on what, what they are expecting. And if you can't meet those demands or expectations, 
well, being willing to walk away from it and say, well, I'm sorry, uh, that, that's not me you're seeking. Too many times myself not having had that talk down the road, figure out hmm, that this should never have been a collaboration. We, we actually needed to have, and I don't think it needs to be more than 10, 15 minutes beforehand, but set down some non-negotiables of the, the coaching relation, understanding, being clear on, on roles and expectations in terms of what is the job of the player? What is the job of the coach? What is the job of the parents? I believe I, I was definitely a coach that for the first couple of years, I was pushing parents away. And, and I, I thought they were completely crazy in the way that I got, I got long emails. I got uh, phone calls in the middle of the night. And, and I, I thought they were completely crazy. But then I was, I was lucky enough to, to have some really good mentors and older coaches and more experienced coaches that I could ask for advice. And they were really good at, at handing up a mirror to me in the way of saying, but, but what, what are you doing? How, how well are you educating the parents? And looking in the mirror, I realized, well, I, I was doing absolutely nothing, but I was expecting them to behave in the way that I decided without having ever, not about teaching them or deciding what they should do, but having that conversation with them and clearing the lines and the roads of who has which job and just being on the same page. So I think for me, in terms of parents, for instance, what I've come to, to notice over the years is the more time I use with parents, the less time I use with them. I don't know if that makes sense, but the more upfront I've been with parents, not letting them decide what we're going to do, but letting them stay in the loop, letting them understand why we're doing something, the less phone calls, the less angry emails, and the less talks in the start or in the, the finish, finishing parts of the session through the, through the gate of, of the tennis court. Yeah. So fundamentally, I've changed a lot in my approach in clearing expectations and roles from the very start. I think that's, that's a point where I have gone wrong a lot. And it would also, without pointing fingers to, to general tennis coaches, it's also a point where I've seen others um, probably not being willing to, to take that conversation up front and take the, the short-term unpleasantness, but then long-term, it's going to be unpleasant, is my belief. Yeah, that's such valuable information, especially for, I'm, I'm sure many coaches might have even just had an aha moment around that. I used to call them high-maintenance parents, and then I realized, oh, okay, they're just auditory digital learners, or they just need the information in a different way, and uh, I, I've now I call them happy Mondays, because once they, you have that expectation, they become the most loyal clients. I love that. All right, keep exploring what we've got to adapt next. Adapt would be also in the way of I, I would also, I would be wrong when I started out coaching in the way that I, I have a method. I have a way of teaching offense, defense, neutral, to serve the return. And if, if a player was, was not getting what I was telling, I would say it louder or more angry, or I would repeat it more times, or I would be frustrated that why, why is this kid not getting it? Like, what is, what is wrong with this kid? And what, what I've come to realize over time is, well, pr probably it's not the kids or the players that needs to adapt to, to me as a tennis coach, but, but it's me who needs to adapt. So I need to build some trust. I, I think trust is a foundation of creating a good environment, which is, is the next one. But building that trust by adapting, and I think that that is sometimes down to just being interested in the person, not only the tennis player, but I think there is there is a, a great deal of cultural leadership in the way that you meet players when you just step onto the court. You you can talk about the the hot shot that happened last night in in the open, but but you could also talk talk about little Peter, like you knew that that he was doing a science project in school or. Make sure that you know the parents' name, what they're doing, do they have any siblings, and, and by the way, what, what do they like to do when they're not on the tennis court? All of these small conversations that is not referring to their ability to hit a forehand, 
that that's something that I'm using a lot more time on in terms of building the trust to then having the open window of when I want to get something through. First of all, I know a little bit more about them, but I also have a sense of what is their learning style? How do I best get through to this player? And in that way, super interested in semantics in terms of, for instance, we as tennis coaches, tennis is a sport that traditionally is taught in, in a very technical way. And we have a lot of knowledge about biomechanics and exactly what it should look like. We have a lot of internal language, so referring to a specific body part. Whereas if we're looking into teaching, then if we want to have more acute learning, also chronic learning, meaning that they can do it again next Tuesday without us reminding them, and then also performance under pressure, then the way that we should, should as teachers often formulate what we're doing should be by external language or external coaching cues in the form of, for instance, it could be analogies, it could be action works. And I think, again, a place where I've gone wrong a lot is focusing a lot on I'm really trying to show the players and also the parents on, at the balcony how much I know about tennis. So I'm rambling on. I'm, I'm describing everything with internal language. And, and what we learn from, from general science in motor learning and motor skill acquisition is that if there is an excessive focus on one body part, then it will often lead to paralysis by analysis under pressure. So a simple switch like changing from internal language to external language in the form of analogies is something that I'm pretty big on in terms of teaching where I also believe that it will, first of all, it's a funnier atmosphere often to be in, whether it's kids or adults, but it's also something where you get through to players a lot quicker. It will stick better and they will ultimately perform better. Mm. To me, if we can become better teachers in adapting to the individual, because it will not be the same analogy that is working for one player and the third player, it might be an action work. And we can't say that internal language or internal focus point is, is by definition wrong. We can just see across sports that if we can talk into an external cue point, then it, it's working better. So some of the, those things is super interesting to me. So an example could be on the tennis surf, for instance, you could reference something about stretching the left arm if you are riding. But it could also be an external point of reaching towards the heaven. And the, the premise here is if we are focusing on something in the environment, then our bodies are naturally recruiting the muscle fibers that is necessary to perform the skill. So it's okay initially to use a little bit of internal language, especially if you have someone that, that would like to know the why. But if you don't have anyone that would like to listen to that, well, then let's get into some external language and play around with it. And they will remember years after that funny metaphor of uh, someone that is not, not pushing enough on their back leg and, and jumping all the way into the ball. It might be the analogy of, hey, hey try, try to jump all the way into the pool. Because if, you are, if you're not jumping all the way into the pool and you hit the curb, it really, really hurts or someone that is not jumping high enough and pushing enough on the left leg if they're righty, well, maybe if they like apples or pears, we'll talk into the analogy of, well, do you think the, the apples are the apples, the best apples, are they in the top of the tree or in the bottom? Most kids will answer in the top. I don't know why, but I'm happy to agree with them. So we build a story of, hey, on that surf, remember to get the very best apple because you I know you really enjoy the apple. And that's the coaching cue that we can get back to. It's easy. It's funny. And under pressure, if they can get back to, oh, it's, it's the apple thing. It also takes a little bit of, of the seriousness and the anxiety as well. Mm, singing to my philosophy, mate. Last night on court, there's this um, a triathlete, a beginner, beginner lady that I'm working with. And uh, it's so interesting with beginners too, how fast they swing. And, and I was like, oh, 
just pretend you're swinging underwater. <laughs> you know, Good and night. when you said the pool, I was like, oh, that was last night. So an environment for me is, is based on the belief I don't believe that I can teach anyone anything. I believe I can create an environment and I should really be conscious of what kind of learning environment am I providing the players with. But ultimately, I don't have any control. I can create the same learning environment around different players, but but there's also something in how how well are they at using the strength in that environment, but also compensating weaknesses and in a teaching environment that's where i really believe if we are good at adapting and if we are good semantically and also in the way that we put up situations in drills so creating drills that if they they make the drill or the purpose of the drill they they will get better so creating drills that is designed for them if they succeed then they will learn the skill I believe it's a key skill coach and thereby environment to me is, is so it like it's a key thing and shaping the environment to be the best possible knowing that not all flowers will grow at an equal speed sometimes there will be seeds in the ground that have the best environment of of everyone but they will not grow at all Sometimes some of, of the seeds will grow and turn into flowers that will cover a little bit for the other ones. So they're a little bit more in shade, but trying to give all of the seeds the, the best possible growing experience and, and also just the, the best circumstances to grow. You can take the horse to water, but you can't make it drink. Yeah, I think that's uh, yeah, that's, that's yeah. Oh, these analogies, I'm loving it. <laughs> yeah, you find this interesting, and I'll I'll send it to you. But uh, it's called the Serial Winning Coaches Project by um, a professor in Queensland. Uh, I'll send you the the article. But he researched 14 of the world's most successful coaches, and he found three things. And he, he turned them into metaphors, would you believe? So the first one is the coach as an architect, which is yeah. all about the learning environment. So that was the first mm. uh, commonality they found. The second one was coach as performer. So mm. we focus so much on the athlete being a performer. Sometimes we forget that the coach needs to perform so that the athlete can perform. And the third metaphor was coach as learner. So you, if you're a curious lifelong learner, always wanting the, to get the information to stay ahead, uh, they were the three things that what they discovered in relation to what makes a, uh, a great coach. So thank you for sharing that on environment. And uh, yeah, I'll, I'll definitely forward that, that on to you, Adam. Final question on the coaching podcast is where we ask you to ask us a question. What does Adam want to know more about? How to communicate better as a tennis coach. And as a coach, all coaches out there as well, how to communicate better. Yes, that, that, that is the number one question that is on my mind. I'm mm. super interested in that. And I think there is a big untapped potential there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I'm with you. I got out of tennis altogether until I, you know, was then when and studied these types of skills as you know, uh, when we when we were when I was on your podcast, so it's such it's so important. It catapulted me back into tennis, and I'm so glad it's your journey has catapulted you back in, even though you're a lot younger than me. But uh, what you know, what did you say before coaching 2.0? I think I'm on coaching 4.0. But <laughs> every every chapter we we learn something new. Well, listen, thank you for being on the coaching podcast, Adam. Do you mind if I ask you just a couple of extra questions because you are fresh? from Tokyo is that do you mind if we do a bit of an extended interview is that cool with you all good the Tokyo Paralympics that's where you've just returned from I'd love for you to share you know, how was the experience I've worked with the wheelchair the Danish wheelchair rugby team for the past year and and before before working with them I'd never worked with with disabled athletes um I was quite curious in the start. I asked quite a lot of questions before accepting the, the, the job opportunity. Um, 
And what I quickly came to, to find was that they, they are human beings and they are athletes and they want to be treated like, uh, like professional athletes. So that has been my approach. There has been some instances where there has been some, some disabilities that I had to get wiser on because they had an effect on how much energy do they have in one case also with, with CP. There has been certain disabilities that I have had to look into and understand more in order to understand so, so what's up with this person could be energy wise and managing energy in the training session, but could also be in the everyday life. But in one instance, there was also something on the mental aspect in terms of does this ability, because it's also affecting the brain, uh, is there something here that I should be aware of that I would not normally look out for? And going that way around working with athletes is just, it's, it's been very similar to working with, with all, our, all our athletes that I've worked with. There is just the layer of there are certain disabilities, but I've handled them or tried to approach them in the same way that I would all of the athletes. Mm. And that was my general sense being in Tokyo, being around thousands of, mm. of Paralympic athletes. Well, all of them are trying their best. They're working hard. They are super professional. Um, and being being together in Tokyo, being in in the the Paralympic Village, was was a great celebration. And I think it was a great celebration in the midst of the rest of Tokyo being unfortunately very affected by by COVID. Inside of the the Paralympic town, we got tested every day, but but there was close to no cases. I think there were two or three. Um, that I heard of during the, the the Paralympics, so I think that was a huge success. And obviously, well, we, we're out there to compete. We're out there to do our, our very best for the Danish team. We we were seated seven out of eight teams. We ended up on on the seventh place. So I, I think in in terms of level, that was. Um, that, that was pretty satisfying. The way that the team did out there and, and what they showed in terms of team spirit and, and being together out there was, was amazing to me. And, and that character, they on a journey, it was nice. They started out by, by beating the two-time Paralympic champions, which led to an emotional roller coaster of all of a sudden believing that, that, that they could do everything to then returning to the level that they are at in, in most games. So in that way, as, as a sports psychologist, there were quite a, quite a job to do, trying to, to get the whole group together. Then I'd say that working in a team environment is, is a lot different from working with individual athletes. I'm still trying to get better in a team environment. There's no doubt it falls more naturally to me to work with individual athletes, whether that is from tennis or other sports. That is what I, I naturally relate to the most. I think working in a team environment, I'm, I, I, really, I really appreciate how difficult that is to manage a full team. Um, and, and that is a, is a difficult task that I really admire the, the coaches to, uh, to do in their everyday work. Mm. And especially every time I even watch NFL football, like I just go, oh my goodness. Sometimes, you know, it's easy for us to say we athletes, athlete centered, but when you've got 90, 90 athletes in front of you or, or a team, and a lot of people don't realize that Paralympics simply means alongside the Olympics, para. Mm. I just, you know, I think that's important that we educate all people on what it actually means because it was a, involved in the Sydney Olympics back in 2000. So mm. uh, were you born then? I'm not sure. <laughs> You don't need to answer that. Don't worry. So I'd love to um, just go back to communication. I know it's one of your passions and uh, an area that you that interests you so much. What do you think are the most common mistakes that coaches make as it relates to communication? I think in terms of coaching style, only having one way of doing things. I also think a general thing is, is being, being very direct in your coaching. Um, that keeps us in our job um, ultimately. And I know we, we, we're pre pretty agreeing on this point. I think uh, something to strive for as, as a coach is, is to coach your way out of the job. 
So I think a, a tennis coach that that is that is not what most most tennis coaches are. Most tennis coaches are more tennis instructors and and giving out instructions. And and I think there's a very very subtle distinction in if you really want to be a tennis coach, then I don't think it's all about asking questions all the time. I also think there's something in terms of your ability, something about your experience. Culturally, there's definitely also something there. I've been been coaching uh, kids from from the Middle East, and when I I started to to ask questions and involve them, I completely lost respect. And they were like, just just tell me what to do. Like, don't don't you know what to say? Like, aren't you my coach? So so I think we can't say there's one way of coaching. And I think that is also that is in, in the culture. But I think being better at understanding in different situations, how do I best lead the athletes in their, their coaching journey is super important. So having one way of doing things. And definitely being in the spectrum of being direct versus indirect, only being direct, I think that that is a, a case of concern. But I also believe, and, and I think when I started at university studying sports science, I think I went all the way to, to, the, to the indirect way. And I think that's not a good way either. So, so I think it's also a matter of understanding where am I on this continuum? And, and navigating that depending on where is the player in their, in their development. So again, I think whether we call it adapting or being flexible in your approach, I think that that's the most important and being inflexible in your approach and only having one way, I think that's the biggest mistake. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, completely agree. It's a, it's a beautiful journey along the spectrum, isn't it? <laughs> and it's interesting in the different phases of your career, where you you explore that um i love it when i was in coach education for 10 years and i was helping coaches because direct comes more natural of course uh, when you're starting out and so i was helping them become more indirect and we then uh, had them re-watch their lessons and they felt they were you know say 80 percent indirect and quite often uh, they would give the player the information and then ask a memory recall question, you know? Mm. So remember, you've got to hit the ball early to, to get it to go cross court. And there's like, Hey, what have you got to do? What have you got to do? Yeah. It's just a beautiful journey that we, I think you and I, again, singing on the same page there with regards to it, helping just explore the different, uh, the spectrum. Yeah. And mm. if I could build on that, I will probably say another thing, that I'm, I'm definitely guilty of as well, uh, especially in my early days. I think uh, one of the biggest mistake is is teaching like you were taught yourself. Mm. I think you you it's the natural thing to do, but but it's also a matter of even though I'm I'm not not that old, I, I would still say that, that there are different generations, and ex- expecting to teach the, the younger generation today like they were just taught ten years ago. And expecting them to to have the the capacity of listening to more than twenty or thirty seconds explanation is just ludicrous, and you can't you can't demand that from the kids. They are are used to to a fast paced world with instant gratification, and and they are very very quick in switching their attention. Mm. So I think as a teacher today, you need to be so good at covering up, actually working on the same thing but they feel like they're working on something new. So making very, very quick adjustments, regressions and progressions and adjustments in the way you go about your drills is a key skill that we need to do today. Whereas I think 10 or 20 years ago, it was a little bit easier just doing the same in seven minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, and and there would be no trouble with the kids. Today, it's a recipe for disaster. How can we get there? best out of this moment in the time the quality versus quantity with the time that we have yeah wonderful uh and tell me a couple more analogies metaphors what are some of your other i mean we've already touched on a couple already but is there some that you you just have a lot of success with that you could share 
I would say I'm, I'm quite uh, inspired by Louis Kaya from, uh, from the LTA. I think he has a, a wonderful language um, when he's teaching. So that could, for instance, be, be catch the volley or tap the volley, depending on what, what you're trying to do. And I think if we can use these little external verbs that elicits a feeling of what it should feel like, or it could be explode off the ground or explode towards the heaven. So I think if we say explode, that elicits a feeling. And if then it's towards the heaven, there's also a direction. We could then build the analogy of, it's a, it's a little bit like if, if you see a train coming into a station going from slow to fast or a rocket going from slow to then exploding. So I think the more we can elicit feelings, the better. And then it's about knowing the kids, understanding who they are, what can they relate to. So putting an analogy on that is relatable for them. Mm. For grown-ups and, and kids, sometimes it will be different. But I, I don't, I'm not sure I find that, that some analogies just work over and over and over. But I... I'm happy to take out the time and use one or two minutes to, to co-create an analogy because I know it will stick a lot better than me telling them to push more on their back leg on their serve 50 times. Mm. Yeah. And what about on-court coaching? You, what do you think of it? And if you were to, your player calls you down onto the court, you've got 90 seconds I know it's a very broad question because I'm not even giving you a, a fictional scoreline, but what do you what do you think in those moments uh, would be what you would consider some great communication or what have you even heard or what, do, what, what are your thoughts on that? The boring answer is it depends. I say very much on personality. In I'll start out broader and say on-court coaching, especially in juniors, I'm all for it. I think there is a charm in tennis in the way that it's a sport when, where you're out there, you don't know for how long. It, it's, a, it's a battle. You're, you're playing a game where the score is very, very tight and you have to deal with micro losses all the time. So it's from a mental standpoint that it's a tough game to play already. So, for instance, that there is a tournament concept that is, is now also broadening outside of, of Europe that is called Tempro. And I, I really, really like the tournament concept, first of all, because you, you're guaranteed four matches in the year that you're born, and then you can play an additional year. So, you know, going to a tournament that you're guaranteed eight matches. First of all, I really like that in junior years. So it's not like you're, you're traveling to another country and then, then you might get one match or maybe two matches if you're lucky. So just knowing that you're getting a lot of matches, I really like. But one thing that I really like about the format is that you can do on-court on coaching one time a set. Most of the times when I've been to that kind of tournaments, I'm just coming in and I'm taking the temperature of the player. So just, just figuring out, hey, what are you thinking? What are you feeling? How are you doing? Most of the time, they're actually okay. They, they just need some, some recognition and know that oh, you are actually doing the right thing. Or maybe try to do a little, little, try to cover the court a little bit more with your forehand because your forehand is really good. Maybe that's everything that is needed. And, and sometimes it's more. But what I would be, be aware of, be very careful of, is I will, from the outside, I will have a view of what's going on. And I, I will never go into an on-court conversation on the court and just start rambling on and try to get my point through. I will always, and that will be the same if I'm talking to a player post-match, I will always tap into what are their feelings? Where are they at? Ultimately, going on the court, sometimes when you tap in, you will find that they are super emotional. It will be tough to get anything through. And in, in those circumstances, you try your best. Maybe, maybe you won't succeed, but always tap in on what is their temperature because that, then, at least to me, then you have a little bit more of a grasp of, okay, so what do they need? 
based on what they feel. I like that temperature. What is their temperature? Not obviously <laughs> in Celsius degrees, but uh, emotionally, that's uh, that's great. Yeah. Really good. And one last tip for parents about the car ride home or the car ride to to what are your you do have wisdom beyond your years uh young adam but uh what for our coach to help coaches educate parents thoughts mm. yeah i would say that the car ride back home is super interesting to me um one thing first of, i would say from talking to a lot of kids i i think the car ride back home can sometimes be be a, a really bad experience for kids Sometimes they will feel like it's a little bit of an interrogation when parents are leading with the question, why? Why, why didn't you? Why? It was so much better when you did that. Why, why, why did you do that? Or just leading with that why question becomes an accusation and an interrogation, whereas most kids probably don't know why. Tennis is a weird sport in the way that there's a lot of tennis coaching going on on the on the practice court, but it's it's most certainly it's always the parents taking them out to tournaments, which is also why I believe expectations in terms of how, how do we get a learning loop from tournaments to practice and practice to tournaments, it's something that is very rarely in in my experience talked about, and and it, it, it's completely lunatic to me that it's not talked about that. I don't have a set way that it should work, but we should definitely talk about, okay, how do we make a learning loop? Is it the coach defining a couple of focus points for the match and then the player writing down in a book and then they talk about it next time at practice? Is, is, the, is the parent involved? Or what I think typically happens is that nothing is, is formulated beforehand then the evaluation is something that the parent is doing. The kid is not that that thrilled about the parent doing an evaluation and feels like mom or dad, you know nothing about tennis and please don't interfere. Mom and dad, if they're not educated by us as tennis coaches, they, they can probably most judge on the result. And then after they have been to 15, 20 tennis tournaments, they feel a little bit entitled. I've, I've now been to that many tennis tournaments, so I know quite a bit about what's going on. They will probably attack the post-match very much from what is breaking down, and that will be what they lead with. And we will have, then the parents might debrief to the coach, um, uh, too many double faults, or always missing on the backhand in defense. If that's then what is worked on in practice, because that is the debrief from the parents, it's going to be a tough time if we're always practicing on what's going wrong instead of building around the strength and then also building into, okay, let's look at, at what, what is breaking down. That, then it's a little bit easier, but if it's always its main focus on weaknesses, it's going to be a tough ride to be in tennis. So I think the car ride back home First of all, I think sometimes kids, they are experiencing more of a interrogation in the car ride back home than if we actually took a video camera and put it in the car. I think parents oftentimes are just trying to, to show their interest and trying their best to ask something. That's why I really believe we as, as tennis coaches as well need to educate the parents about what who whose role is what and if we are going to ask any questions well then it should probably at first obviously there will be a result it's sport and that matters as well but pre-match always have defined one two three mini goals or focal points it could be for instance covering the court two-thirds of the court with the forehand stepping in in front of the the baseline on second serves it could be daring to be aggressive from the start or when it gets tight. Then one way that parents, if it's their role, could help the, the children uh, evaluate that and take some learning out of it could be to evaluate on a scale from one to 10. If, if we're asking questions like, how did it go? Then oftentimes we will also get a, a, an answer like, fine, okay, bad, 
So we will feel like the players are very, or you're not really reflective as a player. And why, why are you answering so bad to my questions? Well, may, maybe it's the quality of our questions that is then determining the quality of our answers. So with most kids, I find if we are very concrete on, for instance, covering two thirds of the court with the forehand, if we then ask them afterwards, so on a scale from one to 10, where one is really bad and 10 is really good, how, how well did you feel like you covered the court with your forehand? Ask them to pick a number, could, could be seven, for instance, then challenge them on, okay, fair enough, what, why wasn't it five? Then they get to, to talk about why they actually did pretty well. So they might say, well, I actually think I did a, I did a pretty good job, especially in the start of the match. And then also when, when I got up for one the second, I, I was really using my forehand a lot. Okay, fair enough. So in, in the next match or next tournament, if it should be at nine, jumping two above the answer, what, what do you then need to do? Mm. Yeah, my, my forehand is actually kind of my strength. So I should probably dare to use it from the very start to try to hurt my opponent. And also when it, get, it got tight in the first set at four all, that then I, I can't accept too many backhands. I really need to cover the court with my forehand. Ah, oh, okay, br brilliant. So, so just remind me again, what is important in the next match? Well, to use my forehand a little bit more, be courageous. Also when it's important, I, I really need to lead with courage. Obviously, I'm probably answering better than an eight-year-old, but I actually do find that kids very quickly, if you run them through this kind of routine, if you in the daily practice as a coach, if, if you practice this way of doing a learning loop, very, very quickly, they will learn to do this. And I also find that kids are allowing parents to evaluate like that because the, the parents are then not, they, they are not getting involved. They're just asking some questions. So I think that could be one way of, of evaluating as a parent with your kids back home in the car. Make sure that it's not right after the match, especially if they have not lived up to expectation. So also beforehand, make a deal about when do you evaluate and who is evaluating and in what way. I don't think there is a set way of doing it again, but clearing expectations is super important. Then I think the last thing I would say is talking to quite a few kids about that car ride back home. Some of them will mention it is one of the reasons that they are considering quitting the sport altogether. And I've also heard from players some, some quite terrifying stories of what's going on. So sometimes, I do believe it's, it's a really bad experience. Sometimes also the kids are exaggerating. But what I find interesting is if I ask some of the kids about, have you ever had a car ride back home that was actually a really, really pleasant experience and it was different? And, and what a lot of them come back to is, well, now that you mention it, when, when I had my grandparents take me to tournament, that car ride back home, it was completely different. And I think to me, it, it's quite a good rule of thumb. Just thinking about how would my parents, how, how would they, what, what kind of environment would they create in the car back home from a tournament? What would they emphasize first? So I don't think we, we, we shouldn't be worried about talking about the result and evaluating the match, but what would they lead with? And what kind of atmosphere would they create in the car? I think in that way, very often, sometimes unconscious, we are creating an environment around our kids that is signaling that we are only valuing victories or that it's the most important. So for instance, if you on a day where the kid has won a match against a higher ranked player or tournament or whatever, if then there's loud music in the car and everyone is happy and you, you go to McDonald's or, or wherever you go, and then on the days where the kid is not living up to either the, the parents' expectations or their own expectations, if it's then the interrogation or there's complete silence on the way back home, we are showing what we, what we value 
And most of the time when I'm speaking to parents, it, it's not that the, the, the thing that they're valuing the most is not whether their kid is beating all of the other kids. Most of the time, it's much more on, on character traits like have, have, they, have they given all they got? Have they, have they been, been a good sports person? Are, are, they, are they, they great there supporting their friends? Are they fair to their opponent? Are they able to handle pressure? So if we really believe some of those traits are important, then, then we should also value that. Mm. So whether that is going to McDonald's or somewhere else, it could also be that, that little Johnny has worked on, on really covering the court with the forehand, or it could be that little Johnny has, has had a tendency to, to give up when he's behind. Well, maybe he lost the match, but he fought all the way to the end. And that's what we're going to go out and celebrate. Mm. So what kind of, of signals that we are sending with the way that we behave and reward mm. as parents, I, th- I think it's, it's, it's a very, very important to be aware of. Yeah. And expectations was the, the through line. Another little story to round us off. Uh, I asked Rob Barty, Ash Barty's dad, the same question. And he mentioned on the car ride home, he would, you know, they would never talk about tennis unless she brought it up. So that was the rule as well. Like a really, just a nice way. If you want, if you want to talk tennis, if you, but then you, you have to start the conversation because otherwise I'm not going to, I'm not going to talk about that. I like that as well. So that way the ownership is on the player too. So anyway, Adam, we are out of time. So otherwise we could have kept going. I hope everybody out there really uh, got as much out of this conversation as I did. Uh, I, I do mean it. You have wisdom beyond your years. Please follow Adam, um, reach out to him and listen to his podcast. Do you want to just mention how people could reach you and, and just the name of the podcast and follow uh, yeah, you? Thank, th- thank you. Thank you for that opportunity. Uh, I, I say uh, it's very nice words and it's flattering of you to to tell me. I think that the reality of, of I, I still see myself as, as an, a novice in, in the tennis world. And I've been, I've been super fortunate to, to learn, like learn from people like yourself and, and that I'm, I'm trying to stand on, on the shoulders of giants. And what I have done in my own podcast is the same. I'm curious to get to know more from, from tennis experts. And I, I believe if you, if you're searching for my name, Adam Blager, then, then you'll get to, to see me on, on different social media the the podcast I think if you search on my name it will appear as well. It's called Dissecting High Performance in Tennis, and that's basically what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to understand how can we make better tennis players, but at the same time also make sure that it's tennis players, no matter where they end up level wise, that we use tennis as a medium to to build great character strength. Mm. Fantastic. Thank you, everybody. And thank you, Adam. And I hope you enjoyed this episode. The Coaching Podcast was brought to you by Emma Doyle and Simon Blair. And if you enjoyed this episode, please remember to give it a rating and a review on your podcast listening device. Thanks for listening.